Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. My name is Dr. Casey Patrick, and we've got several special guests with us here today for an episode that admittedly is overdue. My medical director, Dr. Rob Dixon, is joining us. Good afternoon, Casey. And we have our first responder coordinator here at MCHD, Brian Perry, and Chief Ray Vaden uh, from Porter Fire. And this, like I said, is an episode that we probably should have done a long time before now. And if anybody has been listening to the podcast at all over the past couple of years, you've just like us heard way too much about COVID and the pandemic and all the ways that, it's, that this has affected us within EMS and within emergency healthcare. And there has been some silver linings though from COVID. And here in Montgomery County, we've managed, we've evolved, we've tolerated COVID just like everyone else. But through this, we've developed what I feel like is improved communication with really all of our stakeholders and partners from the community to our hospital partners. And for the purpose of this episode, our first responder, our fire department partners here in Montgomery County. And that's been sort of multifactorial related to necessity, new personnel, charting advances and a new EPCR system here within the county. And for those of you that don't know we've talked about this multiple times on the podcast just a brief overview Uh, montgomery county hospital district ems is a third service ems uh, provider we serve all the 911 transports here in montgomery county about 1100 square miles but under dr dixon and i's medical direction we also uh, serve 13 first responder fire organizations here in the county who are vital for our uh, patient care as a whole and we've realized that probably belatedly throughout COVID during the strains and the additional pressures from hospital wall time and you name the surge, Delta, Alpha, Beta, all the surges that have happened. And that really has led to improved collaboration between the 13 fire services and MCHD EMS from my standpoint so that really a culmination of this along with you know Brian being in in his role now for you know 18 months two years a couple really excellent cases over the past couple months that have illustrated some of our initiatives and some of our change in patient care approach from an EMS fire department collaboration and some recent evidence that I saw that really I wanted to share with our fire partners and some of the firefighters here in the county sort of led to the culmination of this episode. So what I'd like to do is just let Brian and Chief Vaden sort of introduce themselves to the listeners, let Dr. Dixon talk a little bit about some of our EMS fire medical initiatives that we've pushed over the past couple years and then roll into the cases. So take it away, Brian, introduce yourselves, tell the listeners a little more about what your role really means and how that bridges to all of our fire partners. Awesome. Thank you, Doc. Uh, My name is Brian Perry, and I'm the first responder coordinator here at MCHD. And one of my primary goals and job descriptions is to be the liaison between our medical direction and our county firefighters. Um, As medicine changes and new things start to roll out, it's my job uh, to educate and train all 800 plus of our firefighters here in the county. Um, One thing that I 
um, try really hard to do is just to create a more efficient system. Um, we have a lot of uh, fire departments in the county. We have a lot of fire stations in the county that can make it to, to the scene a little bit faster than we can sometimes. And just making sure that they have all the tools in their tool bag that they need to be successful for our patients is my number one goal. Chief Aiden, tell the listeners about your role out in Porter, a little bit about your service and uh, sort of what, how you and your role intertwines with EMS. Certainly. Uh, my name is Ray Vaden. I'm the Deputy Chief of Training, uh, Montgomery County ESD-6, or Porter Fire Department. Uh, kind of a, a smaller department that's, that's growing into a, uh, a bigger organization. Um, it seems like we're growing every day. Uh, currently just under 60 employees um, staffing. Uh, my primary role day to day is to, to coordinate the training and documentation, everything that goes along with that. Uh, at the same time, I also uh, work with the first responder program, uh, kind of liaise back and forth with Perry and, and uh, coordinate with the committee and on the first responder stuff here. And a lot of this, a lot of this efficiency that you're talking about comes from communication, comes from us sharing charting tools, and also comes from sort of a unified approach to right. medical care from the fire first response and arrival to the changeover to the EMS crew and the transport to the hospital. Talk a little bit about some of our initiatives, Dr. Dixon, that we've pushed over the past 12, 18 months and how that sort of rolls into our cases. Right. And so I think that's a great start, Casey. And, and truth be told, some of these initiatives were there before, but what COVID did for us evolved, the, it really forced us to evolve. And although we were collaborative and knew our fire partners and had a plan and had an FRO coordinator, um, COVID really kind of brought us a lot closer together. And at the same time, it really highlighted some of the, the, the uh, vulnerabilities of the 911 system, which is our wall times go up and we have 30 trucks, it's a, it's a numbers game. Um, we, we can't not answer a 911 call. We have to keep the system, the integrity of the 911 system to respond and give life-saving appropriate medical care. And it really kind of came as, as this aha moment of, we have 800 plus trained providers in the county that may be able to respond and usually do on the fire truck a lot quicker than we're able to get a transport ambulance out there. Why aren't we utilizing them in a more efficient way for the most appropriate patient care? And I think it's, it has really had huge, huge benefits, not only for the system and the citizens of the county to be safer and have better patient care and improve patient care, which is ultimately what it comes back to, but I see a ton of engagement in the firefighters, Chief. I mean, if they feel like they're part of the team and it, and it all flows from more, more training, more time on with Brian on one-to-one. -one. Um, so a couple of the initiatives that were actually IGELS was there before. So we have an expanded scope of practice for our mainly EMT basics. There's some advanced and paramedics, but essentially if you took our fire services, we have one ALS department and we have the, the remainder are BLS certified departments uh, with a mixture of AMTs or some paramedics in those departments. But essentially we took the BLS departments and extended their scope of practice. The two big 
uh, interventions are really three, threefold, or two are procedural, are supraglottic airways for cardiac arrest, IM epinephrine for severe anaphylaxis, and our initiatives to enhance their scope of practice on taking refusals, on lift assists, uh, and patient care activities to where uh, some of the departments are answering solo and they're simply calling a transport ambulance should they need one. So it's really expanded in my time here, I think for the good. And part of it was out of increased collaboration during COVID. Right. And the other part is that we simply as a county outgrew our ability and we really had this huge resource of trained medical responders there that was generally untapped for many years. So you hit on lift assists and refusals and sort of the interplay there. You talked about I am epinephrine for anaphylaxis. Those two are the two that really were encapsulated in our two cases. These are two real cases that Brian brought us that were brought to us by actual MCHD crews, by the fire crews. When these cases happen, everybody sees these and says, hey, let's take a look. But if you don't have open lines of communication, you don't have communication at all, these never get shared. So these with Chief Vaden and folks like him and our other, you know, 13 departments, Brian and his chair, it allows that information flow to go in both directions. So we hear about that on a Monday morning and say, wow, that's a cool case on Tuesday morning. Wow. Let's look at that chart. And then it brings to the forefront and really makes all these initiatives seem worth it because it takes all of those different facets and we talk about rule number one at mchdms it is patients are the foundation and these two cases definitely definitely uh, reflect that so the first case brian tell the listeners the short version on this case and sort of how it got fed back to you and let's talk a little bit about the quote lift assist and why sometimes it's more than it may seem absolutely so this this particular case um, was brought to me by the crew because uh, our EMS crew came up to me and said, you need to look at this case. This was a, a close call and your, the fire department did an amazing job. So they were dispatched to a medical alarm and when they arrived on location, um, they found an elderly female that was not injured. She had fallen, she just needed help up and to go to the restroom and when they um, after they assisted her going to the restroom, they decided to do their full assessment. And that's when they found that she actually had a heart rate in the 20s. Um, so at that point, they called for the ALS ambulance, who ended up having to pace the patient all the way to the hospital. And that is really lift assist and the danger of lift assist in a nutshell. In many services out there, fire and EMS, third service combined, no matter how it's chopped up, what happens in a lot of those cases, Chief Aiden? You get called for lift assist. What happens? Uh, the the traditionally the approach would have been that that you know we don't need to wait on an ambulance. We're going to get there and put the patient back up in the bed or or clear it as a no patient and no injury and 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 basically clear it there and, and go back to service. But there's dangers there. There's Correct. educational points, and when you're teaching your crews about the lift assist, we have to divide it into a couple parts. And that is, if you're lifting someone then they're probably in the floor or in an abnormal position. So did they injure themselves when they got there? The trauma is always sort of our first focus. But the bigger focus has to be on why are they in the floor? Why can't they get back up? 
And that's the piece of the puzzle that's so often missing. And that's where the assessment comes in. So what, what are the, what are the high points when you're teaching your fire folks, your crews about lift assist and what they need to focus on? Uh, so Dr. Dixon referenced while ago about, about the, uh, kind of the increase in the, um, energy that it takes to go to the EMS calls and some of the interest that has, has kind of peaked over the last year and, and the increase we've seen with that. And what we like to talk about there is that, that yes, I, I think you hit it on the head when you said that firemen like to go when they can be involved and they feel like they're a part of a team. And now we're seeing that trend more and more, uh, and it's becoming evident that even in a world of the fire service that EMS may not have always been the most popular uh, type of call to run, uh, what we are seeing is that at the end of the day that the fire department, fire service, fire industry as a whole uh, is in fact there to help anytime there's a need there. So for there making that uh, effort to focus on uh, benefiting the outcome, whatever that looks like, whether we're keeping a medic unit in service or uh, just being there for the, the citizens that are calling us, no matter what that looks like, at the end of the day we want to do what we can. Uh, the downfall to that is is doing half of the work without the documentation, the thoroughness, uh, checking you know the head to toes and the the events leading up to and kind of the background of, of everything that that you're faced with there. You may never know what you're missing. Um, this one scenario here, you know, could have had a very different outcome very quick in the fire service. And in you know two years, three five years ago, uh, it, just here in Montgomery County or or at least in the parameters of Porter Fire Department, it would have probably had a different outcome had we had we not been diligent with it. And if you're not educated on the need for that assessment and we don't put our medical knowledge in play, whether, we any, whether we're an EMTB, an AMT, or a paramedic, if you're just doing a chore with no concept or no insight into the reasoning behind that, of course that can seem entirely deflating and defeating. Right. But if you have a charting system in place that you can use that is intertwined and, and seamless with EMS, if you have a stepwise approach and you are taught the dangers of lift assist, and we know that a large portion of these patients are admitted to the hospital after these lift assist calls and these patient refusals, we know that they have diagnoses like sepsis and fractures, new cancer, dehydration, anemia, heart blocks, like in this case, that it's not just an inconvenience. These patients need lifted because they're sick. And if you are taught that from your EMS education side, if it's solidified from the fire education side and you're part of that team and you see yourself having a role there, it feels much less like a chore and much more like teamwork. And that is organizational and foundational. It's not something you can just say. You have to put those pieces into place. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Casey. I mean, I think this this is a game changer, and uh, and I think that what Brian did for us is he took something that had some structure and he really put some teeth behind it. On uh, we mentioned a little bit about the charting system, right? We have a unified charting system now, and Porter kind of led the way in in really collaborating with us and saying, yeah, we want to get on board with this because you have one charting system then you have unified quality with both us from the medical direction side brian is the liaison to all the fire services and the lead at fire to get behind these cases and be able to review the ones that didn't go so well and the ones that really went well so i think it's that it is structured training we use a lot of the podcast education 
to assign to the fire departments. If anybody's wondering how Brian did this, we'll actually give his email at the end of this. So you could reach out to him or the podcast email and get more information on how is this system set up, like the nuts and bolts. Probably a little bit too much for this cast, but I'm super excited about where it's gone in the last year to 18 months. And I do see the huge, huge benefit to patients in the engagement of our firefighters out there and our first responders in the county. So that case is, is really, I mean, the crew involved in that case had to have been flying, the fire crew specifically, had to, and the EMS crew had to have been flying high after that one. You have an elderly patient that is called out as a lift assist, no big deal, something we do every day, uh, another one. We show up, we do a great exam, we take a history, we figure out she's hemodynamically unstable, we activate the appropriate resources, EMS arrives and paces the patient to the hospital. Kudos on them, like that, you know, advanced interventions, uh, like, you know, life-saving interventions, and the patient ends up with a pacemaker. And so everyone involved in that case from start to finish is educated, they have a plan, the system works as it should, and the patient outcome is improved because of that, just like you said, Shufaden, and that's how we gain buy-in. That's how you fight burnout, is by knowing that you're on a team, the team working like it's supposed to, and seeing benefit from that. So that, that's an that's a A-plus all around. Talk about the second case, Brian. This is one that you brought us just the other morning, and I wish you'd had a camera on Dr. Dixon and I's face because it was, both of us were like, whoa that's pretty amazing so tell us about the case too absolutely so this particular case uh was an epi administration okay uh they got dispatched to a difficulty breathing for a seven month old that's fire dispatch right? fire dispatched yes and so when they arrived on location this was actually based off of how the call taker uh received the information was actually a non-emergency call uh so the fire department continued and uh, started their assessment when they arrived on location and immediately identified it as an urgent patient and requested the medic unit upgrade to lights and sirens. I'm gonna pause right there and just insert for all you listeners out there. We did review the audio on this call. This was an issue of triage is an imperfect science. Dispatched is even more imperfect in that you can only go with the information that you're provided. There were no deficiencies from a dispatcher standpoint this was just one where the information provided and what the patient actually looked like there was a disconnect and that's where the first responders whether you're fire whether you're ems whether you're the emergency physician or the emergency triage nurse that sees the patient first you're only as good as the information that you get and that's not always the patient's fault or the caller's fault humans are complex and so this is one where the response was appropriate the determinants were were appropriate and Honestly, the firefighters who arrived were given a non-intentional case of triage bias. They were triaged to a lower level than what was actual. Which yeah, is they were actually set up to fail. Set up to fail. They performed incredible, incredible, incredible case. Carry so, on with this one. This is a good one. So, so they arrived. What they see and how they how they react, Brian. So, so when they arrived, they found uh, the baby being carried by their mother that was actively vomiting, 
that had hives all over their body and uh, obvious difficulty breathing. So at that point, they determined that this was anaphylaxis. Uh, they don't know if it was from the new amoxicillin uh, that the baby was on or some peanut butter baby formula. I'm not sure which the allergen was, but they had two allergens that could have caused this. They recognized that and immediately um, administered the correct dose of ep- EpiIM. So how long have y'all had EpiIM at Porter Chief? We're probably not quite a year and a half. Yeah, and these are ones where when we talk about Epi for anaphylaxis, we often forget the key word at the end of that sentence, and that's epi for anaphylactic shock. These are time-critical, time-intervention-critical patients in that delayed epi equals increased mortality. So we know that the earlier the better, the earlier recognition the better, and when we're going to talk about this on a podcast in more detail that we're going to record here in the next day or so to really branch out into this anaphylaxis an anaphylactic shock topic across the board ems emergency departments pediatrician offices parents and family for whatever reason and there are lots of them and we'll dig into those too much for today's podcast but people are reluctant to pull the epi trigger right. and from our standpoint trying to teach this it gets a little bit murky because the u.s and the european definitions of anaphylaxis are a little bit different and if you start to get into, well, two out of three, two out of four, if this, then that. And I see, uh, I see Chief Vaden's eyes start to cross. Brian's going to sleep. Uh, mine were crossing. Do- Dr. Dixon's <laughs> having an a, a, a absent seizure over there. The easiest way for me to think about it and to teach EMS first responders, and I would throw ED providers into this, is think about the big three. You have angioedema, you have respiratory compromise, and you have hypotension. So if you have any of the big three, single one. So if you have angioedema plus an allergen, wheezing plus an allergen, hypotension plus an allergen. So only one of those and an allergen pull the epi trigger will be my thought. If you're 50-50, we've talked about this on a podcast, anytime you're 50-50, pull the trigger, patient advocacy. If you don't have an allergen, and this kid thankfully had two of them because that was uh, part of the great history that the that the firefighters took and were able to, to delineate that and use that in their decision-making process. But if you don't have an allergen, which is very, very common because you may not see the bee sting that the, that the gentleman stepped on when he was mowing his grass, you may not know that the child crawled around the floor and ate the peanut that was left over from the football game the, you know the night before you need two of the three big three so what are the big three again angioedema facial swelling respiratory compromise usually manifested as wheezing from bronchospasm and hypoxia and or hypotension or shock Casey, would you add skin rash with the skin manifestation of angioedema would you expand it there to say skin rash plus hypotension, you should pull the trigger? I would. I would, too. I, I mean, would. I think that that's reasonable. And I love the way that, that Casey put that together because we were reading over the, the European criteria and the American criteria. At the end of the day, I'm a simple person. I can remember three things, and I can remember one extra thing. So I think skin manifestations, 
plus minus angioedema, hypotension, or wheezing. So if I have two or more without an allergen, pull the trigger, or a clear allergen plus one of the others, anaphylaxis, I pull the trigger on. I am epinephrine. Let's make that clear to the listeners. That's a different podcast, but I am epinephrine, just as efficacious as IV, a lot, lot safer for you medical directors out there that may still have it in your protocol to give IV epinephrine. There really isn't an indication for 300 micrograms of IV epinephrine for anything. If you dose with IM epinephrine, that can be multi-dose if you do not get response. And the guidelines vary somewhat, but there is a progression. IM, IM, two to three doses of IM, I would progress to an epinephrine IV drip for the the paramedics. And in our service, that would be transition over the easy-to-mix push-dose epinephrine. Have a look at, at that podcast. So when we talk about perception and wrapping up here, because this really is a a collaboration is, is the point of this entire podcast. These two patients hesitate to say the word because it's overused, but these two patients likely were lifesavers. These two patients were very much critical, very much could have had significant compromise, if not death without quick actions and thorough history taking, thorough exam taking and communication and activation of appropriate medical treatment of appropriate uh, you know operational requests without the quick thinking and the training from the fire crews on both these cases so that leads us leads me to kind of close up with in a lot of systems and across the, the fire industry today there is varying degrees of the level of how on board we are as a fire system with the medical care of patients and that's i don't think i'm saying anything that anybody in this room wouldn't agree with in your service porter specifically chief vaden with with brian's help for sure but when you're in the in the room and it's just your crews how have you built this up as something that's not a chore for them and something that's that is teamwork what are some of the things that you've taught them what some of the feedback they get some of the changes that you've made to try to get buy-in from your crews uh, i think the biggest thing for us is is hey we joined the fire service to to try to help people to try to make a difference uh, to try to just be available for when somebody has a need um, sometimes we have to go back and we have to kind of redrive that force back into saying um, you know that the ems world is a huge part of uh, what that expectation is uh, sometimes you know 70 80 percent of the call volume in some departments uh, across the, at least in our area sure. um, we, we do push a lot of the the mindset that says when the ambulance gets there that's not our key to get back in the truck and go home that's the chance for our advanced EMTs our paramedics to to do a little bit more to have a little bit more hands-on time with a little more resources and that gives us the opportunity to keep up with some of the more advanced skills that we don't necessarily do on a regular basis at the end of the day we go back to kind of what we talked about earlier that that the more we can do the more they want to do uh, the, the bigger difference they can make or the more involvement that they can have there uh, the, we seem to, to have a correlation to the amount of effort or uh, excitement if you will that's that's put into that that type of call and I'll take I'll take the I'll take the lead there because that was a question that I asked you for for that specific answer because in a lot of systems 
whether or not they transport or not, but especially when fire doesn't transport, there is that perception that EMS is here, you know, we're out. And that's totally false. And there's actual evidence from CARES data. And I don't want to bomb all the listeners out there with evidence, but I want especially our fire crews and our fire partners to hear this because this is, this is vital. This is why you do what you do. And we can wrap law enforcement up in here as well. And we'd like to at some point probably involve our law enforcement partners in a similar discussion. And that is a study from resuscitation from this year from Salhi et al. And this was direct CARES data evidence, CARES data extraction that they took. And for the listeners that don't know, CARES is one of the biggest out-of-hospital cardiac arrest databases. And they looked at fire and police initial intervention and the end outcome of folks that suffer out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So pretty important group of patients in the medical care that we all share, EMS, fire, and law enforcement. And when fire and police initiate CPR and or AEDs, if indicated, guess what happens? This shouldn't be a shocker, no pun intended, but neuro-intact hospital discharge rates improve. So when fire and law enforcement have a role and they have that training and they're able to intervene with CP, CPR and AED use, more people walk around and talk and have dinner with their family and have Christmas gifts and, you know, hugs and kisses and all those things that matter to us. We're not talking about ROSC, return of circulation. We're not talking about stay alive to the hospital. We're talking about when fire and EMS arrive on scene, they dive into their protocols, they initiate treatment, whether that's hand on chest, whether that's deliver the shock. I would extrapolate whether that's place an eye gel, whether that's IM epinephrine, if your training programs allow these interventions, we have more survivors, more neurointact survivors. Our two patients at the end of the age extremes that we presented today surely reflect that. But this is some CARES database resuscitation, the Mount Everest of resuscitation literature uh, evidence that shows what y'all do, both fire and law enforcement, on the scene before EMS get there, absolutely 100% matters. So anything you want to add on to that, Dr. Dixon? You said it all. Couldn't agree more, Casey. So if you're just randomly out there shuffling around, picking folks up, running back into service with no clear plan, no structure, no feedback, no unified charting system, no education – then yes, lift assists, medical alarms, a lot of these things can 100% seem like a chore. I have no doubt about that. And we do have lots of these mundane or seemingly mundane tasks that can creep into all of our worlds. But just like Chief Faden said, if we're putting patients first and we're seeing this as a community-wide effort to get patients seen and evaluated medically as quickly as possible by all our trained medical uh, trained medical providers in the county it's nothing but a positive so brian you want to uh, wrap it up we're going to continue to bring and to spotlight our fire partners here on the podcast hopefully this can be a recurring series i hope that you can continue to provide us with these awesome cases because it really gives us a touch point for conversation you know lift assist you're teaching them you every day out there explaining that 
the lift assist is important, but how they get in the floor, we've got to evaluate them. Why'd they fall? Vital's okay. Got to do an exam. Is this an acute decline, a chronic decline? Um, what else would you like to say to the, the, the fire folks that are listening? You got all their ears right now. Absolutely. At the end of the day, when I leave that fire station after training, I want them to know without a shadow of the doubt why the patient fell. That's my biggest, uh, em- I emphasize that the most, is before you have them sign on that uh, PCR saying that they're refusing transport, before you even offer that to them, they have to know why they fell. If they do not understand why they fell, then the ALS assessment needs to be done. At very least, an EKG at that point. It's syncope, you know, at that point. What about what about epi? Epi, we know early epi saves lives. Epi saved this little this little guy's life because he was sick, wheezing, diffuse hives, couple allergens. This wasn't going to go well without IM epi. And really, when you read our cruise chart from an EMS crew chart standpoint, looks like a different patient. Yeah, it does. And, and I'll add one spoiler alert for the anaphylaxis podcast. What is the number one killer of people in anaphylaxis? It's delayed administration of epinephrine or no epinephrine is a killer. And then lastly, we got our eye gels. We got our out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. We've worked in the emergency department for a long time. Y'all have been around emergency care for a long time. Nothing chaps my backside more than emergency care providers from the EMTB up to the CMO of the hospital that hear the cardiac arrest tones or the code blue or the radio report that a cardiac arrest is coming and give that. If we didn't sign up to run and try to rescue patients in cardiac arrest, then I'm not sure what we signed up to do. And that's all of us. So for me, I have trouble with that. We know that earlier interventions, CPR, hands on chest, defibrillations, if indicated, whether that's delivered by a police officer, a firefighter, an EMS crew, us in the ED, more folks out there are walking around, talking, rejoining life with their families if we do those things. That should be no more of an encouragement to do what we're trained to do and to do it with gusto, really. To me, that's the ultimate in emergency care is trying to trying to get ROSC. What else are we doing here? So thanks, Chief Vaden, for coming on. We would like to try to find these good cases every few months. I hate to say quarterly because that locks us into quarterly. We want to bring you cases when they're something that we feel like y'all as listeners can learn from and really something to spotlight our fire crews and our, our medical fire collaborative pieces and and programs here in the county so we'll work on making this one recurring no promises on time because we don't want to bring you cases unless they're worth listening to so as always if you have questions concerns if you'd like to uh, touch base with brian about some of the details and nuts and bolts behind uh, some of the initiatives we talked about podcast at mchd-tx.org as always leave us a like or a review wherever you listen or watch on youtube but only if it's five stars We don't like four-star reviews, surely not three stars. We get our feelings hurt. So leave us a five-star review. Keep listening. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back again soon with a new episode. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. 
Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.